Welcome to Hashing Out the Law, Episode 15, Justice Under the Rubble. I'm your host, Arash Hashemi. This is the podcast where we discuss and hash out legal issues and or topics. Our guest this episode is Andrew Stern, one of Philadelphia's most accomplished trial lawyers. Andrew is currently a partner at Klein Inspector and specializes in malpractice and other substantial personal injury cases. In 2017, he won the largest recovery in Pennsylvania history for one of the victims of the Salvation Army building collapse. Andrew and I will be discussing the details of the case and his new book, Justice Under the Rubble. Today with us, we have Andrew J. Stern. Mr. Stern is a partner at Klein Inspector in Philadelphia. Um, and Mr. Stern, or Andy, as he would like me to call him, is is an attorney. In 2017, he won the largest recovery in Pennsylvania history uh, for one of the victims of the Salvation Army building collapse, which then later read to, to his new book that's out. It's called Justice Under the Rabble. Um, welcome, Andy. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's talk about, um, before we talk about the book, actually, let's talk about um, how you ended up with the case and, and what led up to actual the case that that happened. Yeah, so what happened was the, the building collapse occurs on June 5th, 2013, and within a few weeks thereafter, I'm retained by uh, Mrs. Plekin, who, uh, it's a horrible story. She was buried alive under the rubble for 13 hours and survived, but she paid a heavy price. Half of her body was amputated. So uh, I was retained early on in the case, and the big challenge was a number of things, one of which was finding the responsible party that would be able to satisfy the kind of uh, judgment or verdict that would properly compensate Mrs. Plekin for her horrific injuries. And, and why was that a challenge? Well, it's a challenge because <clears throat> what happens is right after the collapse, the uh, Philadelphia District Attorney targeted principally two people out of a number of people who could have been held responsible, specifically the contractor and the excavator operator, probably because, uh, you know, for one way to refer to it as they were low-hanging fruit, if you will. They were easier to target. Uh, and so what happens is they vigorously pursue them and end up getting with respect to one, that is the contractor, a criminal conviction, and the other, the uh, excavator operator, a guilty plea. So going into the civil trial, and the civil trial was different because in the civil trial, the jurors assessed all potentially responsible parties. But so going into that trial, the jurors were made aware that two parties that were involved in this demolition that was occurring next door were already found guilty. Uh, so you've got that going into this case. You've got the Salvation Army, who I really believed all along was most responsible, and everybody knows the Salvation Army. It's a charity that's well-respected. You've got, uh, and so it's very difficult for people to want to blame the Salvation Army. And then as other principal players, you've got the owner of the building that was being demolished, uh, and that person happened to be in the pornography industry, uh, someone who, again, jurors are not going to... <laughs> typically want to give a favorable impression of. So the bottom line is the challenges going into this where there were so many potentially responsible parties that were easier targets than the Salvation Army. Um, and um, 
what had happened in a nutshell was there was a demolition ongoing next to the Salvation Army thrift store. The Salvation Army, from my point of view, ignored a number of warnings relating to dangers associated with that. They turned a blind eye. They should have closed the store to investigate it. They didn't do it, despite being made aware of it. They didn't tell anybody in the store or the customers of their information relating to dangers. And sure enough, on June 5, 2013, that next door, that demolition occurring next door collapsed onto the Salvation Army, causing this destruction, injury, and death, as I've described. Now, for a logistics point of view, um, and for my own curiosity, Salvation Army is a nonprofit organization. Uh, was it hard to actually uh, name them in the complaint, uh, and not just naming them, but uh, holding them responsible because of the nature of, of them being a nonprofit? Yeah, that was it was wasn't challenging to name them as a defendant, but what was challenging the, the discovery that I had to pursue to find out more information about them was challenging. Um but uh through a lot of follow up efforts what we were able to uncover is the Salvation Army has its own standards relating to safety and if they are made aware or become aware of potential potential safety hazards, they have an obligation under their own standards to address it and investigate it. Now, in addition to that, our legal research showed that because, yes, they're a charity, but nonetheless they're operating a store like a retail operator, they've got a high degree of responsibility, just as any other retail operator, to protect customers and employees. So putting all that together, we were able to put together with expert testimony a case against the Salvation Army that they had failed miserably in that regard. I should point out and many of the listeners probably don't know this, the Salvation Army has an enormous amount of net wealth. Uh, I'm talking about a, a organization that has a net worth in excess of $10 billion. That's more than the Nike Corporation. Now, when we had the civil trial, the jurors never got to hear that evidence because of what the judge did to ensure fairness, she bifurcated the case, meaning that when we started the civil case and all those potentially responsible people were in the courtroom, people that I described, like the building owner, like the excavator operator, like the um, the contractor. Now, I should tell you, though, the contractor and excavator operator weren't even in the courtroom. They were in jail. But the building owner, the architect, the Salvation Army, and other res potentially responsible parties, uh, they were all there in the courtroom. But the difference here is the jurors only heard evidence relevant to assessing liability or responsibility. The horrific damages, injuries, deaths, amputations, all of those things did not come into evidence in the first phase. So it was in that first phase the jurors assessed responsibility. And you will be surprised to know that in that phase, in the civil case relating to assessing responsibility, the jurors found after they heard the evidence that the Salvation Army was the great had the greatest responsibility for what had happened. Wow! Now, did the Salvation Army own the building, or were they just leasing it? I'm just asking so, for my own. No, these are good questions. <laughs> so these are good. These are good questions for background. So what we've got again, we've got a Salvation Army thrift store that buys and sells goods located at 22nd and Market Street. That's where it was located. And next door, there was a vacant building. It was called the Hoagie City Building. It was used for a number of purposes, including uh, pornography shops. That was being demolished right next door. 
And what had happened was the person who owned the building, the pornography person, uh, had through an architect and other representatives had hired people involved with the demolition. Now, make no mistake about it, they definitely had responsibility here because they hired operators and contractors who really didn't have much experience, and they were the, clearly the low bidders by a lot uh, because they just really weren't very good at what they were doing. Um, so what happens is they're doing the demolition in a clearly substandard fashion, and in the, because they were doing it in the way they were doing it, the building became dangerous. Now, as I mentioned earlier, while this was happening, the Salvation Army were given warnings relating to dangers associated with the project, project, but they ignored them, thinking, well, we can't really believe that this is true. The people that are warning us, they're only doing it because they, they're the demolition people that want access to our building. We, we don't think they're credible. And the problem, of course, is you're taking a huge risk without even looking into these things, just assuming that you can't believe this stuff. Well, that was very, very reckless. Because all they was had this, to do was tempor temporarily close the store and look into it. That's what I was going to ask you. Was this demolition during business hours, like normal yes, business yes, hours? Yes, it was. It was. And if you saw wow. pictures of what it, if you saw pictures of what it looked like, you would think to yourself, "My gosh, look at this!" I mean, how could anybody not have concerns about the integrity of this structure that's right next door? And through discovery, right. what I also found was that uh, in prior cases, the Salvation Army had closed its store when it had reason to know there were dangers. But here they don't do it. They keep it open, and there's evidence to suggest that it may have been motivated by mo monetary uh, incentives. Hurricane Sandy had just happened the previous year. Their, some of their stores had closed, and they wanted to keep this store open. And indeed, on the day of this horrific collapse, it was called Family Day, where they had sales, where they had reason to know that even more people were going to come to the Salvation Army to shop. And that's, once again, instead of... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, instead of just saying, look, we really don't know for sure whether or not these emails that we're getting are, that are, are, are true or accurate relating to dangers, we just can't take a risk... Let's just close the store temporarily, hire some people to look into this to make sure things are safe. Well, they didn't do that. And what the evidence also uncovered that I found was that about two weeks before the collapse, there was a meeting that took place between representatives of the Salvation Army where, ironically, the administrator who was in charge, his wife, who they referred to as Mrs. Major when she was in the room with her husband, who was Major, um, that she actually suggested in the memo. It's part of the minutes. Maybe we should relocate while this is going on. And he responded, the administrator, no, 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 said the husband. There's no need to look into this. Everything's, uh, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep going forward. So there were plenty of opportunities to just temporarily close the store. The Salvation Army held the keys to the store. And had they done that, I wouldn't even be talking to you about this. This wouldn't have happened because nobody, it might have happened, but nobody would have been in the store and nobody would have gotten hurt. Um, right. So that's really, that's really at the end of the day what it came down to. And that was my position from the beginning. And that was the position that I focused on from beginning to end. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it, it leaves me speechless because if somebody comes to me and says, look, we're going to demolish the building next door to you. Um, I would think common sense says that I should close my, my business during the time the demolition is going to happen. 
One. Well, that's two. Yes. And then two, why is the demolition happening during business hours anyway? But then, like Winston Churchill says, uh, common sense is not so common. Now, right. And that's, pictures, that's exactly, and that's exactly correct. That was also my view that this was really not that complicated. Yes, it's true that in center city Philadelphia and other urban areas, you do have situations where there are demolitions occurring ongoing next door. Yes, that's true. But this was very different in terms of how it appeared, in terms of the warnings, in terms of all kinds of issues that were being ignored. And uh, I think that your point is a good one. I don't think it took a rocket scientist to figure out as time was going by that this needed to be looked into. And the Salvation Army yet turned a blind eye and, and did not do that. Now, and I, and let me just you, say this about let me just say this about the Salvation ahead, Army. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. Overall, this is a wonderful organization that does some terrific charitable works. But in this particular instance, they failed miserably in their mission. And that's really the position that I took. Uh, that in this particular instance, the people that were making the decisions really grossly deviated from what they should have done. And, and the jurors, in their verdict, found as such. And uh, we're talking to Andrew Stern about his book, uh, Justice Underneath the Rubble. Uh, speaking about pictures, you said if anybody could see a picture. The picture on the cover of your book, it, 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 it's very captivating. It's it shows your your client being pulled out from underneath the rubble by about I'm counting one two three four five six there's like eight firemen and uh, if anybody could see this picture and we're gonna put it up on on the podcast so people can see it it, it just it's fascinating that that it, it, it is that picture yeah. says the whole story yeah it really does and what and the, the at the time it was captain o'neill now chief o'neill but at the time it's really interesting because he what happened was the collapse happened at about 10:40 a.m. uh on a, on a clear sunny day they were working they were pulling bodies out and and everyone presumed this particular woman my client named maria plekin who interestingly enough was an immigrant from ukraine which is another interesting facet to this story but she's buried alive under the under the rubble for 13 hours, 13 hours, imagine that, and she's in a crouched catcher's position, and they just presumed she was dead. They couldn't find her, but they, were, they nonetheless wanted to find her body, so it's now late at night. It's hot. The buzz of the city calms down, and Captain O'Neill is on top of another pile of the rubble, just taking a break, and he hears this faint noise. He describes as one as a, as a doll that's the, where you pull a string and it's sort of winding down, calling out for help, a very faint voice. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He throws his helmet off. He's sweating. He's on his knees. He starts rummaging with his hands through rubble, trying to move heavy concrete and brick and mortar. And he, and he finds Mrs. Plekin. And the, and the dogs are there, and he calls in for help, and that's when you see all these people gathered around her. And her and the instinct with anyone is to want to get up. And she tried to get up, and he, he held her down, because one of the big problems is when you're in that position for that long a period of time, the fluids in your body don't move. They don't circulate. So she had toxins built up in her body. And he had to keep her down in a position and uh, she's extracted, and as I mentioned earlier, she paid a very, very heavy price. She literally 
ended up having half of her body amputated. She was in renal or kidney failure. She ultimately lost her voice, in addition to all the other horrific injuries, because of the extended mechanical ventilation she had to undergo. So when she speaks today, she has to put uh, one of those reverberating microphones up to her throat that you see sometimes in these smoking commercials. That's what she has for the rest of her life. She's in her 50s, and she will live that way for the rest of her life. And so her future medical bills amounted to over $50 million, and this was one of the arguments that I made that ultimately when I prevailed that enabled her to ultimately obtain a $95.6 million award, a tremendous amount of money that she'd give every penny back in a heartbeat to have her life back. I was just going to say that a lot of people that don't realize, yes, she got a big award, and they're like, oh, well, she's a millionaire now. But she's basically, like you said, half half of her body doesn't work. I mean, anybody would half say of her body is Half of her body yeah. is gone from her hips down. They literally had to amputate from her hips down. And, and you know, you, you think to yourself, my gosh, what keeps someone like that going? And her answer to that is unequivocal and consistent. She said it was her children. She was their mother, and, she, and they needed her. And, I mean, she has grown children. But what's interesting is when she came to the United States back in 2002, she had to leave her children when they were, like, approximately 9 and 10 years old to help a family member in the United States. She's the American dream. She came here to work hard, sent money back to educate them, and... uh when this happened, they left Ukraine and came to be with her in the United States. So they're with her now, and uh, she has constant medical care that she needs. So that part's good. She has her own home. That's all good. But, you know, it's always a struggle. In addition to everything she deals with every day medically, one of her children, ironically, you would think that, you know, they're part of her team or primary caregivers. She's facing immigration issues. Uh, so... You know, it's it's just it's an interesting story that's got a lot of different characters and a lot of different themes, and it's a book that's not written. I mean, there's it's there there's a major legal theme behind it because it talks about the trial, but it's not written for lawyers. It's written for everybody, and it, it's uh, it's getting a lot of really terrific reviews, which I'm happy about. Right, and that was going to be my next point. So you don't have to be a lawyer or a law student to to read the book. It's actually uh, it's actually written for uh, the layperson, and it's very entertaining. Uh, it's called Justice Under the Rubble, and it's available on Amazon, on BarnesandNoble.com. And what what other ways can people purchase the book? Principally, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and and the other uh, site that you mentioned, and that you shouldn't have a problem at all getting it. Although We're I, actually, told, I told Amazon's getting a little low with it, but that you should be uh, you should be able to get it and and if someone wants to get a hold of me my name's Andrew J Stern if you google me I'm a lawyer in Philadelphia it's easy to find me right we're going to make sure to include links uh to to the book in 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 the podcast description so people can actually click on it and it will take them directly to the book they can purchase it and we're going to um we're going to have links to to your uh, law office in case they need your services as well um now, how long did it take you to write the book? It took about a year uh, of a lot of intense work. My co-author, George Anastasia, is an experienced author, and I also had a number of people uh, vet the book with me. Uh, it's a lot harder to write a book so that it's written briefly and reads well than it is just to write something, and it's a lot longer. This book is about 160 pages, and it, 
it's tight. That's what I've been told, and that was the way that I wanted to write it. It's not a lot. There's no fluff. There's no wasted space. It gives a it gives the, the whole the, the whole synopsis and talks about you know the other thing here is the city of Philadelphia was a major player, and and I think that uh, the listeners should know that I hope it doesn't happen, but this is the kind of thing that really could happen in any major city. So it discusses the role of the municipality in these types of things, licenses and inspections, and what role they played and how things were improved in Philadelphia. Um, but yeah, the the point is is there was a lot of effort to write this book so that it reads easily and it's it's a it's a page turner as I've been told and I certainly believe that it is and uh, it's very efficient the way it was prepared. Now the book uh it goes through the trial from beginning to end uh, or or how how does the book start? I I want to I want to listen Well it to starts it and I don't want to give too much away here but it starts right, exactly. describing yeah yeah, but it does start describing it, – it kind of grabs your attention. It, it, it starts out by describing this collapse and this – at the time, Captain O'Neill discovering Ms. Plekin, and it it gets into the whole story. She, Ms. Plekin, who is my client, the one who was severely injured, is sort of the, one of the lead characters, if you will, of the story. But it then introduces all these other interesting characters that are part of the story. And there's all kinds of themes that that sort of emanate from that. You've got, like I said, this you know this this horribly injured immigrant who, and along with other people who are who've been killed, you've got this person who owns the building being demolished who's in the pornography injury in, industry. You have the Salvation Army that has the building next door. They're a charity. It's sort of like as we describe it, guys and dolls with an edge. You've got these. This uh, this contractor and this excavator operator, who are African Americans, uh, the, they end up being uh, targeted by the district attorney, and they end up being the pawns because, ironically, they really weren't even aware of a lot of the things that were going on as the evidence unfolds. So it's a story about you know at first blush you'd think well gee what would the Salvation Army have to do with this. And the more you hear about the evidence, the more you understand they had every bit to do with it. And and then also part of it is a discussion about the lawyers. And and you have a group of plaintiff lawyers, and there's an alliance that forms, and that alliance breaks down because there are differing interests. And then, of course, you have the defense lawyers, and these are all the top lawyers in Philadelphia. So you get to see the dynamic of how the lawyers interact. You, you, part of that story is the the woman who was my co-counsel was someone I recently hired, and she had, and it ends up being me and, and this individual named Ms. Crawford against really sometimes my own fellow plaintiff lawyers. So there's all kinds of interesting themes that make up this story that I think add a lot of of interest to it. It's, it's, it's actually a very interesting book. Uh, I can't wait to read it. Uh, for those of you who who were not paying attention, <laughs> which I hope was none, uh, the the title of the book is Justice Under the Rubble, uh, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Andy, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. I, I really enjoyed it, and and, and I hope uh, uh, your book is as uh, successful as it should be. Um, I know Amazon is running low on it. I, I hope they they keep uh, replenishing their supply and they keep running low on it again. Uh, it, it was a pleasure. Very interesting story. 
Um, um, is there anything else you'd like to add to the listeners for the listeners to, to know before we, we sign off? No, I think we've covered it. I appreciate very much the opportunity to talk with you about it. My pleasure. Uh, again, Andrew J. Stern, attorney in Philadelphia, uh, author of Justice Under the Rubble. It was a pleasure. Thank you.